Hello, and a very warm welcome to this, this fourth webinar in our 2022 Science and Life series on rare diseases, entitled Doing Better Where It Counts, Bringing Rare Disease Care to Underserved Populations. I'm Sean Sanders, Director and Senior Editor for Custom Publishing at Science. This series of six webinars on rare diseases began in April this year. We've covered a number of important topics, including discussing who the stakeholders are, are that need to be involved to have the greatest impact on rare diseases, investigating the role of innovation hubs and centers of excellence, and how personalized medicine intersects with the rare disease field. In today's event, we're going to talk about how we can do better bringing care to patients with rare diseases in under-resourced communities and countries. Finally, thank you to Foundation Ibsen for sponsoring today's event and this series. Now, I'd like to take this opportunity to welcome our wonderful panel. I'll give each of them a chance to introduce themselves. And I'm going to start with Dr. Consuelo Wilkins. Welcome, Consuelo. Thanks so much, Sean. I'm Consuelo Wilkins. I'm the Chief Equity Officer and Senior Associate Dean for Health Equity at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. So I'm trained in internal medicine and geriatrics and spend right now most of my time, though, focused on uh, research that emphasizes health equity, including relevant to this discussion today. I'm one of the leaders of a recruitment innovation center that uh, provides guidance and resources uh, around clinical trials, including those for rare diseases. Great. Thank you so much, Consuelo. Uh, our next speaker uh, that I'd like to welcome is Linda Gola Blount. Blount. Uh, Linda, thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you, Sean. Um, I'm Linda Goler Blount, President and CEO of the Black Women's Health Imperative. And the Black Women's Health Imperative is the only national nonprofit organization focused on Black women's health and has been for almost 40 years. Uh, I'm an epidemiologist by training, and, and we focus on chronic disease prevention, reproductive justice, maternal health, um, and we have a significant policy shop. But I think for the purposes of today's conversation, what might be certainly worth mentioning is I'm the chair of the Rare Disease Diversity Coalition, which is a uh, coalition of more than 50 uh, pharmaceutical companies, um, patient advocacy groups, and research groups that are focused on trying to understand the drivers of inequities in rare disease treatment and diagnosis and to shorten the amount of time from appearance of symptoms to diagnosis to effective treatment and to improve the research pipeline for rare disease. So I'm happy to be here and looking forward to the conversation. Great, wonderful. Thank you, Linda. Uh, next up, I have the pleasure of introducing Dr. Nikayla Cook. Uh, Nikayla, many thanks for joining us on this call. Well, it's such a pleasure to be here today. I'm Nikayla Cook. I'm executive director at the Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute, or PCORI. And PCORI is a research funding organization that targets um, the opportunities to provide research funding for studies that will help empower patients and other stakeholders such as caregivers and clinicians and um, policymakers with the information and evidence that's needed to make important healthcare decisions. And we do this by funding comparative clinical effectiveness research or CER as you may hear me call it today. Um, but one of the unique things about PCORI is that our authorizing law actually emphasizes research for rare diseases. And in doing so, um, authorize the establishment of an advisory panel for rare diseases that PCORI taps into to understand the issues really important to conversations like today and of patients that may be across the country. Um, I'm a cardiologist and health services research by, researcher by background, and I've had a longstanding interest and addressing the issues of differential outcomes and healthcare access, as well as health outcomes amongst individuals that live in um, different parts of the country, uh, may have differential access by um, geography, as well as by race, ethnicity, sex, and gender, and other issues. So this intersection of thinking about um, those individuals with rare diseases that uh, may particularly live in underserved communities is incredibly important to me. Thank you very much, uh, Nikayla. And uh, finally, I'm pleased to welcome Jamie Sullivan. Uh, thank you for joining us, Jamie. Hi, Sean. Thanks so much for having me. Um, so I am Jamie Sullivan. I am the Senior Director of Policy at the Every Life Foundation for Rare Diseases. 
And Every Life Foundation is a nonprofit, really patient-focused organization. Our mission is, is really to bring innovation and that uh, and the diagnostic odyssey, as Linda talked about, and to really improve the development of and access to treatments and diagnostics. Um, I work on our regulatory and legislative initiatives and really look forward to this panel discussion where I can talk about some of the work we're doing and supporting in collaboration with groups like Linda's to help drive policies that can not just support innovation in rare diseases, but help address the underserved, uh, under-resourced populations that we're here to talk about. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Jamie. Uh, so we have a very broad subject today, uh, It both uh, as far as width and depth, and uh, we only have an hour, so it's going to be difficult to get to everything. I'm going to do my best. Um, it was also very difficult to know where to start this discussion. I have scribbles and notes all over my questions here, but what I, I've decided to do is I think it would be helpful to start with what we mean by um, underserved populations, or underrepresented populations, and particularly those um, that are dealing with rare diseases. So, um, Consuelo, maybe I can come to you first to get your thoughts. How do you see this population? Um, where are they and what are the challenges that they're facing? Thanks, John. I think it's really important to start with what we're talking about. Uh, and underserved itself is really a broad term. So, you know, there are many reasons that populations, communities uh, might not be served. And I, I think it's important to contextualize that. Are we talking about not served by the health care system, the health delivery system, not served by research, not served by the social and structural support systems that many of the populations we're talking about are really suffering from uh, being disenfranchised, marginalized, minoritized, disinvested. And so um, to the degree possible, you know, we, we should try and define specifically which populations we're talking about. Otherwise, um, people might be imagining very different things. So for me, usually when I'm talking about um, these groups, I try not to use the term underserved unless I'm specifically talking about you know, healthcare utilization or services, uh, but I'm more frequently talking about groups that, that have been minoritized due to their race or ethnicity, uh, social, social circumstances, and other identities. Thank you, Consuelo. And I, I wanted to add that, you know, when I think of this, I also think of, of populations in countries that don't have uh, the same access to healthcare that some Western countries have, particularly those living in very rural communities who might be a day's travel from medical care. Um, so I, I just want to throw that into the mix. Um, I'd like to open it up. Any other thoughts? Maybe, uh, Nikhail, I can come to you. I'd love to give a perspective related to um, research itself and thinking about um, the populations that we're talking about when we think about um, health research. And one of the things that um, we've talked quite a bit about with our advisory panel on rare diseases is that um, we're often in a situation where um, those that may have rare diseases have been historically excluded from a lot of the clinical research studies that are undertaken, and predominantly because either it may not be recognized um, what symptoms and constellation of symptoms may be presenting with a rare disease, or that um, such individuals may have other complex health issues that may not have them included in um, traditional research studies. So we can often talk about as well historically excluded populations when we're thinking about um, those with rare diseases. I'll also mention that, um, you know, while we typically have focused on patients with rare diseases who also live in communities where they may not have access to traditional services when we talk about utilization of services and underserved, but we also recognize that those patients who live with rare diseases may also be um, members of communities that could be defined potentially as not having those access to services and thus themselves could really be considered underserved in some ways um, by definition. And so um, there is that broadening out of the thinking about the access to services and the utilization of services. And additionally to the um, wonderful comments that Consuelo mentioned about um, potentially the way in which we think about marginalized um, populations. And, and Sean, I, I think I would add that just so people don't get the impression that underserved is a 
passive experience. It, in fact, in this country and outside the U.S. can be very deliberate. So as we look at the effect of redlining, um, the systematic disinvestment in certain communities that make access to public schools or quality public schools very difficult, that keep people from being able to own homes in, in neighborhoods that might be closer to academic medical centers. There's many examples of systemic policies that have harmed populations um, by race, by ethnicity, by income, obviously by geography. So part of the underserved or this term underserved is actually contains a a deliberate uh, attempt to make sure that certain populations don't have access to the kinds of care and research experience and quality outcomes that we're talking about today. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you for making that point. Yeah. So this, you know, comes back to my initial comments. This is, it's a very broad topic and a very complex topic. We're talking about very different populations in uh, very different geographies and, and circumstances. So we will try touch on all of those. Um, so, uh, Jamie, I'd like to turn to you to talk about broadly some of the challenge that are f challenges that are faced by rare disease um, communities, uh, patients, families, uh, and, and following that we're going to talk specifically about then how we layer on top of that the, the challenges that we've just been talking about in, in minoritized and um, marginalized communities. So over to you, Jamie. Sure. Well, broadly, uh, one of the challenges that we focus on is the diagnostic odyssey and the fact that rare disease patients on average face about a 6.3 year diagno uh, diagnostic odyssey after the initial symptoms have presented and they've sought care. And it takes an average of 16.9 different physicians just to get a diagnosis. And many, and these numbers keep in mind are coming from a study of people that made it through the process made it through the diagnostic odyssey when we know that there are, are countless numbers of individuals who are still facing that odyssey and who are not connected into the system to even fill out a study, you know, a survey like this. So this is perhaps the best case scenario is 6.3 years and 16.9 physicians. So the diagnostic odyssey really starts a number of the challenges that rare disease patients are facing. Um, once they are able to win, if they are able to obtain a diagnosis, you know, then we see some challenges around access to care. And that starts with our systems aren't generally set up to count and track and um, help connect rare disease patients to the right resources. So that could be anything from the fact that only a small fragment of rare diseases have diagnostic codes. And that leads to issues around access to care, around prioritization, around connecting them patients into the research opportunities that might be there. And they, it, it also includes the fact that there are only about 5% of rare diseases that even have treatment options. So another broad challenge faced by rare diseases are the fact, you know, is the fact that by and large, um, there are no treatments that have been approved. And so the care that they can access consists of you know leveraging treatments for symptom mitigation that might be used in other conditions or um, the fact that that they may not even be able to do that because the specialist care is not available for many rare disease patients so we can go into more depth in any one of these areas but i think the fact that that we have a long diagnostic odyssey, uh, that we have care that's inaccessible um, from specialists because there's simply very few you know, specialists in many rare diseases. We now are thinking there's, you know, generally people talk about over 7,000 rare diseases, but more and more evidence is coming to light that there's actually over 10,000 and more are identified every day. So, you know, the the patients facing rare disease diagnoses are trying to navigate a system that is definitely not built for that level of um, special uh, specialty care and certainly not if they're living in rural areas not already connected in with the healthcare system. So, um, that's just a, a few of the many challenges that we focus on at Every Life. Great, thank you for, for outlining that, Jamie. So um, maybe if I could come to, to Linda and, and Consuela, I'd like you to jump in as well. Uh, so hearing all of these challenges, can you 
provide us a sense of how um, the, these populations that are marginalized and underrepresented and underserved, um, how they experience the rare disease odyssey and what additional challenges they might have uh, in getting care, getting, um, both access to care and also um, figure, um, figuring in mistrust of doctors in some communities, uh, language issues uh, in certain communities. Uh, so Linda, if I could pass it over to you and Consuelo as well. Yeah, sure. And, and you know, I agree with what Jamie has said. Um, for patients of color in particular, the diagnostic odyssey, as we call it, can be on average seven to 12 years. And partly this is this has to do with access, but part of it is their, their relationship with their providers. Oftentimes providers or patients of color don't think about rare diseases. And I think that may be true in general. I mean, it, it's rare, but it may not occur to providers. But we have a couple of examples through the RDDC of patients, there's, there's one who comes to mind, um, a man was diagnosed with cystic fibrosis at the age of 52 after decades of symptoms. It took that long for providers to finally decide that this might be cystic fibrosis. Another, you know, had a kidney, rare kidney disease. His doctor told him you need to stop, stop eating fried chicken. He's actually a vegan, had never actually had fried chicken. So there's some things that just never occur to physicians, but for patients, obviously we can't make it the patient's responsibility to understand or diagnose him or herself. So what we see as you, as you talk about mistrust is, you know, is the experience. Because once these patients finally got a diagnosis, then they could go back and sort of replay their experiences and realize how they had been underserved, malserved, disrespected um, along the way. And, you know, when we think about you know, what we do to create evidence. Of course, the number one reason people of color don't participate in clinical trials is nobody asks them. It's actually not because they distrust the system. That is a part of it, but they're just simply left out because providers make assumptions about what they will and will not do and what their adherence would be. And then of course, there's the, the myriad of other barriers around transportation and costs and, and that sort of thing. But what we are hearing through the RDDC is that, you know, the providers need to just kind of step back and consider for patients of color, for low-income patients, things that they might not ordinarily consider to give them the opportunity to actually begin that process and hopefully shorten that time period. And Sean, if I can just reinforce um, what Linda was saying, there's a recent study that came out. They did um, universal whole genome screening of babies that were in the NICU and were experiencing some types of symptoms that hadn't been identified. And then they went back and looked at, for those babies that um, weren't previously recommended for genetic testing, but who actually should have had genetic testing, they found 67% of that group that had never been recommended for genetic testing were non-white populations. And it really, the, the paper was out of Seattle. It was talking about there is an inherent, potentially an inherent bias uh, by clinicians of against thinking about genetic diagnoses in non-white populations. And that's a huge barrier for rare disease patients to get a, an accurate diagnosis. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'll jump in and say just uh, maybe, maybe a few points. So. Perhaps I'll frame it based on Jamie's description of, of how the system isn't really structured and prepared for rare patients with rare diseases. Um, at, imagine that also for many of these populations that have been disinvested, marginalized, minoritized. The healthcare, the health delivery systems, the uh, research, clinical research operations were not designed with these groups in mind. So now that, you know, exponentially, uh, they are the impact there. So we had rare disease and then we got a system that was not designed for these individuals. And, and I would also, you know, echo Linda's earlier point about some of this being intentional. So we do not want to, you know, uh, dismiss or forget that, you know, uh, racism, discrimination, bias, built these systems that we're talking about. Uh, and you know, these are the same systems that you know, historically excluded people from research. 
uh, excluded people from high quality health care, segregated care. Like all of these things uh, are built into the foundation of healthcare delivery and, and research. So um, that can't be forgotten. We can't just you know, um, presume that people um, don't want to participate, that they're not being invited, but also we, ha we have to recognize our role as um, you know, researchers and clinicians and, and systems builders and you know, political uh, you know, elected officials, everybody's role in, in what we've created here. Um, and then the other point I'll make is you know, this need for cultural humility. So again, we have people who are presenting with symptoms that might not be clear, you know, the constellation might not be clear, uh, but then you know, there's this you know, a lack of humility when we're talking to uh, people who might be presenting even with slightly different symptoms than those that we are already aware of for some of these uh, rare diseases. Um, so it's you know not the necessarily the the language of the individual patient or family is a barrier. It's our lack of ability to actually provide appropriate care services, interpreters, et cetera. So you know I'm very big on reframing this is that it's not the mistrust or distrust of the population. It's the lack of trustworthiness of our systems of healthcare and and research. Okay, thank you very much for that. Um, I may like just add one other point here, which um, relates to the specialty care that's really unique and um, needed for patients with rare diseases. And um, I think another compounding factor when you start to think about um, populations that have been historically excluded or marginalized or minoritized is that the access to those specialty care centers, specialists, et cetera, has already been shown to be not as robust and to be a challenge, especially um, for our chronic conditions that really require it. And then if you compound what's needed for rare diseases, I think this becomes incredibly important because referral to centers that have specialized care is really essential in the care of rare diseases. And um, being a cardiologist and thinking about specialty care, I just wanted to underscore that other additional, I think, really important factor um, about our healthcare system as it relates to people of color, people that traditionally don't have access to these types of services on a routine basis to then have this sort of need, I think really makes it a much more complicated scenario. Um, Michaela, if I could stay with you just to talk a little bit about some of the challenges with doing research uh, in rare diseases, but it, with to include people of color and people from these, these underrepresented communities, because I know that that's part of what you do. So if you could talk to those issues. Sure, um, you know, I think it's an important question for us to talk about in terms of research with rare diseases, because um, many have um, focused in on the fact that there um, aren't treatments available for um, 95% of the conditions that we now think about in terms of rare diseases. and. Um, we at PCORI have really focused on um, a research portfolio in that space of comparative clinical effectiveness research. And so I may give you a couple of points about why it's even harder in that scenario. Um, but, you know, we have a, a, a portfolio related to about um, 40 different comparative effectiveness research studies and method studies, methods because it's really important to understand um, how you reach um, patients and individuals with rare diseases that may not necessarily um, be concentrated in one specific area, et cetera. You really have to think about how you reach them across the nation. Um, and our studies have predominantly focused on um, those that have been priority populations, such as racial and ethnic minorities, or women, or older adults, or people with disabilities, or even those that um, may be in these um, underserved um, areas of the country, or potentially even be in those marginalized communities where um, there may be a lower level of literacy or even numeracy. And so we've learned a lot from that type of research. And um, we traditionally have found that sample sizes are a real challenge for very robust studies um, where you need a certain 
um, number of individuals to really give you the kind of definitive results that may help to inform a treatment um, change or in the clinical guidelines or clinical care practice. And when you start to think about comparative effectiveness research, where we typically compare more than one known um, intervention that can be efficacious, we often find that for rare diseases, there aren't such interventions and very few to compare. And so we've had to kind of go back to ground zero and think about some of the ways to address sample size challenges and um, as well as um, try to figure out the types of things that may be in use that we could even understand more about. Um, and one of the resources that we've used is a research network that's called PCORnet that PCORI funds to try to overcome some of the sample size challenges. It has a reach to a large number of patients, electronic health record data, and other types of sources for us to observationally review what's happening in the treatment of rare, rare diseases. And we've focused on comparing treatment modalities or treatments with cross-cutting symptoms or screening practices. Um, and what we're looking at as well is treatments for cross-cutting symptoms that may actually be common among groups of rare diseases to try to overcome some of those hurdles. Um, and so we know things like sleep disturbances or pruritus or um, comorbid other conditions can be common across rare diseases and hoping to find clues there that could actually stimulate the discovery pipeline. Um, so it is a challenge in terms of thinking about um, research for individuals with rare diseases. And I would say um, compounded on that are the challenges that we traditionally have in trying to engage populations that have a lot of competing priorities related to their health, healthcare, and daily um, survival. And so we recognize that and use some special strategies around engagement that I can talk about a little bit later as well. Great. Thank you very much. Um, the next uh, topic I'd like to come to uh, is to, to think, thinking about uh, communities with food insecurity, high rates of poverty, um, or countries that are struggling simply to feed a large percentage of their population or are fighting communicable diseases. Uh, what are the reasonable expectations for funding and support of, of rare disease uh, treatments? And um, uh, I know, Nikayla, this is, this is in your wheelhouse as well, so I'm going to come to you, but uh, I'd like to open it up. Um, maybe Consuelo, uh, if you'd like to talk to this. Were you asking me to go first? Yes, yes. Um, sorry. Go okay. ahead. I, you said Nikayla, so I was, I was thinking that she was going first. Well, you know, so uh, when we're talking about uh, people who are experiencing you know, food insecurity, um, you know, lack of opportunities economically, um, other issues that we are often thinking of as, in terms of social needs, uh, there, there are many, many challenges. One being that for, for many of them, it's actually hard to imagine you know, what's the most important issue for them. So th this is one of the things that we've seen um, in the past with sort of delays in presenting even with their symptoms. So people have symptoms for many, many years that might might not necessarily be mild, um, but, you know, they might be disrupting their lives, but their lives are so complex because of these structural and social barriers uh, that they're having to, to overcome. So, you know, if, if you can't, if you don't have food to eat, then uh, you, you're not necessarily thinking about some symptoms that, again, might be classic, you know, mildly short of breath. Um, you're, you're thinking about in that Maslow's uh, hierarchy of needs, like, what do I need at this very minute? Uh, and so it, th those, those are often, you know, quite challenging, but then they all also coexist with, you know, um, under insurance, uh, un, you know, uninsurance, uh, other, you know, issues uh, around access to care. And I would, I would also just, you know, reemphasize, you know, uh, Nikayla's point about having access to specialty care being so critical and important. And it's not just for people who don't have insurance or um, ha are underinsured. You know, we, having access to a um, insurance card is not access to care. Um, if that care is again in um, a setting, if it's in a, you know in a part of town that's difficult for you to reach because you don't have you know transportation or you're working a job that actually you know, you know if you aren't there you're losing money um, and 
uh, or, or you're, it's at an academic medical center where that's where all of the historical, you know, abuse related to, to research and clinical care occurred. Like, you know, that card doesn't overcome all of those issues uh, around access. So I think, you, you know, you're asking the question though, you know, what's the, what's the role and responsibility? I think that's one of the biggest hurdles we have. So you know, often when we're applying for research funding, you know, if we're putting in costs for uh, providing meals for people, even just for the day of a research study, we're often, you know, heavily scrutinized and, and asked to take that out. We can't do that. You can't do that. We're overlooking the fact that participating in research actually costs an individual. So now we're asking them to pay with their time or resources, but then we don't provide anything for them. I think we have, we've, we've been able to do things like provide um, transportation to and from those appointments around um, research, but, but again, that's just a small piece of, of what people need to be able to survive. So it'd be great for us to, to be able to think more broadly about what people need to be able to participate in research, but of course, more broadly, what does health look like? And it's not just about a prescription or what happens in the clinical setting. Mm -hmm. I would love to pick up on that in terms of thinking more broadly about what people really need, because one of the things I think is an opportunity to um, overcome some of these big hurdles is to really look to those who have the lived experience with these challenges to inform us on the best path forward. Um, and this is really where um, the, the work that I described as engagement, I think, comes into play because one of the things we hear at PCORI where um, we really do focus on en engagement and patient-centered research is that engagement of the patients, caregivers, and these communities that we're talking about are really important um, in terms of understanding those affected and um, understanding what's really desired in order for them to be able to participate in clinical research or clinical care. Um, and the different settings that this may occur may need targeted strategies that are specific to certain people, certain populations, and a real understanding of those competing priorities that they're facing in their everyday life. Um, and many of actually the uh, awards that PCORI has made that focus on rare diseases come from our engagement award portfolio, because um, we found there that um, individuals and communities who often are um, thinking about these types of challenges are looking for opportunities to bring people together in special convenings to talk about the treatments for diseases that may not be available to them immediately, but how they may access them, to think about patients and caregivers that are interested in developing communities of support and for advocacy purposes, and also to help identify the research priorities that then we can pursue. And doing that through an engagement venue, I think is um, a phenomenal approach. You know, one example is a sickle cell disease network project that um, we funded in Tennessee, which was an engagement um, project. And the goal really was to try to build capacity for individuals that were living with sickle cell disease throughout Tennessee to engage in research and patient-centered research, as well as to try to build a really sustainable sickle cell disease network in Tennessee that could serve as essentially a conduit for driving patient-centered research and a health healthcare service agenda. And the outputs were the creation of a, a rural urban sickle cell disease community-based network and a facilitation of different educational training sessions on research for non-research stakeholders, um, those that wanted to be engaged in research but weren't researchers, so to speak, and also um, a patient-centered conference on um, advocacy and implementation of um, outreach methods that were created by the community network. And so this is where, again, hearing that um, lived experience and allowing those that um, we're trying to really understand that experience for to benefit from the research and other activities that we're supporting, um, the value was determined by them. And the engagement and um, activities allowed us to understand the research agenda that we could then pursue moving forward. Um, but happy to talk about some of those other lessons learned from this type of engagement as we go through the conversation. And, and Sean, if I could just sort of amplify um, what Nikayla is saying in Consuelo, we are a 
happened to be a grant recipient of PCORI or, or were, and we created a, a program called Teach Trained Empowered Community Health Advocates. But the, the purpose is to understand the lived experiences of black and brown women to help them better negotiate and understand what the clinical trials process is all about, how to participate, how to participate in a way that's respectful, where you feel valued, because that's what we were hearing is those who happened to participate felt like they were being tolerated in many cases. And so understanding the lived experiences and building that into a training program has been really helpful. And, and the, the RDDC is very much focused on understanding what that experience is like. The informed consent process, for example, is burdensome probably for most participants, but certainly low-income participants and participants of color. It's designed to protect the institution Maybe there's an opportunity to rethink what that might be to make it less burdensome for clinical trial participants. And of course, we have to look at the pipeline, the percentage of black and brown uh, researchers and those who have received um, R01 funding from NIH hasn't changed in 40 years. The FDA has some diversity guidelines around um, cl clinical trials and research, but they're not enforced. So we've got some opportunities to make some changes to help broaden the tent that Consuelo is talking about, and to make people feel more included and valued. And if they do, I think the outcomes will be better. Yeah, and I'll just add in that our, you know, our policies just in, in the U.S. aren't really set up to facilitate easy uh, participation in research. You know, we don't have great paid leave. We don't pay caregivers, you know, for the work that they are doing. We don't have great home care coverage or even child care. So we hear from patients who simply can't take another, you know, day off work or their caregiver can't take another day off work. Um, we hear from patients who have two children, one of whom has a rare disease, but they can't go participate in a day of research at the clinic with, uh, you know, without a place to bring their second child. Um, so, you know, our, our system and our federal policies, our state policies aren't set up to even help once we can overcome the barriers that, that you've heard about from um, Nikayla and Consuelo and Linda. Right. So we, we've spent quite a bit of time talking about these barriers and these challenges, and I'd, I'd like to turn to what is working. You know, what are some good models and good examples um, of what is working? So, Linda, I'll, I'll maybe come to you first. If, if you have any thoughts on this, uh, you know, where where can we look to find those models that we can apply elsewhere, and, and are those models portable? Well, you know, I wish I could say there were dozens. Um, I, I probably can't do that, but there is some hope. I mentioned the TEACH program, but there's also examples of, of academic community partnerships. So we worked with a group out of San Jose, California on something we call Tech to Equity, where we wanted to bring research to address the needs that the community had defined rather than researchers had defined. And so actually the, the community group in San Jose conducted its own health needs assessment and then went to the research community in California and Santa Clara University and a couple of other universities to say, here are the issues that are important to us. Here's what we think needs to be done to help improve outcomes and, and the overall health status in these communities. Now, this isn't rare disease specific, but it certainly could be applied in the rare disease space as advocate groups, advocacy groups come together to help identify the issues and talk about their own experiences. But what it would take is researchers and academic institutions would have to be willing to listen to them, to value their opinion, to take their own sort of fundamental research seriously and then act on it. So it's possible, but we'd have to see a change in the standard sort of academic approach to academic research so that the community was included and valued and seen as a part of coming up with solutions to their own um, concerns. You know, people have heard me say advocacy is a luxury. You've got to have time and money to be able to be an advocate. And oftentimes what happens is black and brown people and low income people end up being marginalized by researchers, by clinicians, because they're not out there advocating 
Well, as we've heard, they've got they've got to work, they've got childcare responsibilities, they may have other responsibilities, they simply don't have the time or the resources. Doesn't mean they don't care and care deeply, but they don't have the luxury of the time and the money it takes to be an advocate. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll talk a little bit about one program that it, I think everyone points to as, you know, probably the most equitable public health program, but then also caveat with it's, it is, however, we have a lot of room to improve, and that's in newborn screening. And also you could say similarly about some of the new initiatives that have started to pilot um, you know, universal whole genome sequencing for certain populations, such as NICUs, uh, that have unexplained symptoms. But newborn screening is all, often held up as one of the most successful public health programs. Uh, because it does, uh, it, it is supposed to be universally accessible to every baby born in the U.S. And and truly, it is a great success. However, um, there are certain areas where we know we can still do more uh, and do better. And that's in the sense of um, one thing that Linda Linda just said stood out to me, and that you know you need you need resources and money to be an advocate. Well, one of the ways that newborn screening is system is set up is that the federal panel makes recommendations on what conditions to include, but that nomination process takes over a decade, is often uh, must be led by patient advocacy organizations who then need resources and champions on their side to help get them through that process. And then once the federal panel finally says, yes, you can, um, you know, we think this, this condition should be added, requires advocates to go state by state by state and advocate for their condition to be added to the panel. So just the process to get a condition added to the panel can have some inherent inequities in it. And then also newborn screening, uh, while every baby should be screened, that doesn't mean that every baby has the same chance at benefiting from that care and the therapies that are available following the screen. So we have a lot of room to improve in the follow-up services in how families are connected to care and what is available um, in terms of culturally competent care. And genetic counseling is a great example where genetic counselors, if you listen to rare disease patients, are so critical to helping them understand and start their journey uh, as a, you know, trying to find treatment and understand what it means for their family and otherwise, and yet a very tiny fraction of genetic counselors are coming from non-white populations. So how, you know, there's a ton of room to do better, but I do wanna say, you know, that that newborn screening is is certainly, um, you know, a, a good model, you know, a, a beneficial model, um, but I hope that we can all work together to, to make it as as beneficial as it possibly can be. If I could just add a few things, I think so many wonderful points just made by Linda and Jamie. You know, uh, the fact that you know advocates, um, advocacy is often a lug- a luxury and for the privileged. I would say um, it's it, it's something that I think we uh, we we often overlook. I Me, mean, I, I have worked with uh, a number of really amazing advocates. Um, but especially for, you know, uh, parents, particularly often their, their mothers of children with, you know, rare conditions, this is their entire life. Like they, they spend almost all of their time doing it. Um, and it, you have to be able to afford to do that. And not everyone can afford it. Even those who are doing it is really very challenging, but you, you have to have at least some chance of being supported in some other way. Um, in in order to do the work. Um, And they're often people who um, have a higher level of educational attainment. They've been able to negotiate access to to different, um, you know, circles. Uh, They they can, you know, get, um, you know, their talking points together to go sit in front of, you know, their elected officials. And so, you know, there's so many things that have been set up there, but um, I'll, I'll credit uh, Corey for really, you know, helping to shift this in many ways, because um, you know, bringing the spotlight to the attention that these roles need to be paid, uh, especially when we're partnering and that people need to be compensated is, is something that many advocacy organizations have just, you know, not done or even embraced. It's like, no, no, all of the dollars we raise need to go to the research and, and um, we're not always thinking about who's getting left out. Uh, and then I'll just again emphasize, you know, to, to Jamie's point that, 
know, we, we can advocate for these uh, resources and screenings and, and uh, but it does, not everyone has the opportunity to benefit the same way. And it is not just about access to, again, care and services. If we start doing, you know, broad, you know, um, whole genome sequencing on, uh, you know, newborns or whomever is, is presenting, we have to be able to tell people that if you are from a, um, a population who's not of recent European ancestry, uh, then the likelihood that you're going to receive, have variants of unknown or undetermined um, significance is going to be much higher. So, you know, the, our history with not having equitable and inclusive research is making it even more challenging for these populations as we move forward. So, so what does that mean for how we do this research? Are we going to build in strategies and plans for, you know, when we do find, have more evidence and understand what these variants uh, mean or might mean? Are we recontacting families? How often are we, you know, you know, going back into the databases to see what else we can glean and learn? Um, who's communicating uh, that information to these populations? Uh, how can they, you know, have access to it? On, you know, like there are lots of other things that we need to to build into the the structure that, in some ways, is trying to repair, you know, the the damage, the historical and ongoing, you know, exclusion. Um, of these populations. We, we have to work on that. Um, great. Thank you so much. Nikhail, I did want to give you an opportunity as well to speak to this. I, I know it's uh, in your wheelhouse. Certainly. Well, so much has already been said. Um, you know, maybe the one thing I would add is um, related to one of the points I mentioned before in terms of some of the lessons that we've learned that have worked um, when we talk about engaging these populations in research that actually have um, a lived experience that we can learn from. And one of the things that we talk about with um, engagement as a model is that it's inclusive of identifying the research priorities that um, are important to a specific population, as well as involving them in the conduct of the research and in the dissemination and implementation of the research findings. And what we've learned about engagement over the last um, 12 years or so is that it allows for the opportunity to make the clinical research reflect the needs and the values of the particular patients, the caregivers, the clinicians, and other stakeholders. We've learned the importance of compensating people for this type of engagement in order to allow their voices be heard and to see them as equal partners in the research enterprise. Um, and I think that's incredibly important for um, really making sure that this is considered to be a valuable opportunity um, for those that we're really trying to benefit with the work that we're supporting. We've also learned that um, research um, engagement in research helps to improve the feasibility of doing this type of research in real world settings. And as it relates to rare diseases, one of the things we talked about were some of the challenges of sample size for research. And so moving into real world settings or trying to figure out how to do that when you're dealing with the issues of transportation, childcare, um, you know, kind of the competing issues of um, cost. Um, we know that individuals with rare diseases have much higher medical and out-of-pocket costs and economic burdens than others. And so you have to understand that um, through engagement in order to make the research feasible. And then the third thing I may mention is that we wanna make sure that the research that we do is actually relevant to the population that we're interested in benefiting as well as encourage the uptake and use of the findings. And so it makes Engagement makes the research worthwhile in those aspects, as we've heard. And I think that's truly important when we're talking about um, patients who may have um, a lived experience that's considered rare, um, that we must truly engage in order to understand several of these aspects. And so um, I think some of the benefits of this type of model for thinking about research in the setting is that um, we actually have an increased knowledge about um, what we can do that's more effective, but also patients and their caregivers and others feel like they have an increased knowledge as well as um, more enthusiasm for the research, even when they may be dealing with these large competing priorities that we've talked about. And just to build on a point that I heard mentioned earlier is that it also will help improve the trustworthiness of the researchers and the clinical enterprise, which I think is really important um, when we start to talk about communities that have been historically excluded or marginalized. 
Um, and I think, as I said before, um, I, we couldn't have a better understanding of real world experiences except through the lens of those that have been affected. Right, thank you all very much for, for those comments. Um, in the, the remaining few minutes, I just wanted to touch on a couple of other things quickly. The first is uh, the use of technology and how that can help. So we've talked about, for instance, the, the challenges with patients getting to a clinic to, to participate in a trial. So one of the things that, that I was wondering about is something like telemedicine uh, that has seen a rise during COVID. Uh, it seems to be much more accepted now as a way to talk to physicians and clinicians. So um, any thoughts from the panel on how technologies like telemedicine and also AI that's being used in a variety of different ways might impact um, how we're thinking about this? And Linda, maybe I can come to you for your thoughts. Yeah. Thank you, Sean. You know, I, I think technology, data science, AI has great potential but we've got to be careful. We've got to be cautious. We saw during the, the height of the COVID epidemic, oh, I, I think we're still there, but two years ago, we saw that pulse oximeters didn't work as well on people with dark skin. We saw that dexamethasone wasn't as effective um, in African-Americans. That wasn't a surprise because as we kind of did the research, there were no black people involved in the trials of, of that device or, or that medication. And so, you know, I think we have to be careful when we think about the role of technology. I happened to co-author a paper a couple of years ago where we looked at bias in the machine learning um, algorithms of EHR scheduling systems. And it turns out that the, the AI in the scheduling systems was double and triple booking black patients. Well, certainly there were probably no black people involved in the development of, of the, the machine language or the code. And one wonders, you know, who was involved in the testing. So while the the this technology was considered an efficiency producing technology for the optimal operations of a, of a practice, what people didn't see was that black patients were being double and triple booked, which means they probably weren't coming back, which has implications for their, their outcomes. If they're not coming back, if they don't have time, as has been said, can't, can't take him off of work, childcare issues, transportation, whatever, if they can't come back and wait and wait and wait for hours, then they may never be seen, which means their, their conditions may never be addressed. And so, you know, I think we need to be careful about putting too much credence into technology, but there's an opportunity to look at what has gone into the technology, what's gone into the machine learning, what's gone into the algorithms and create opportunities to be more inclusive one of the things we've been talking about are strategic sort of research committees that work with technology producers, as well as obviously, hopefully improving the pipeline so that when the testing occurs, it's inclusive and we can talk about it being effective for everyone and not just a certain segment of the population. If I could add to, to Linda's uh, excellent, outstanding points there, um, you know, the the data that we're using to create algorithms um, is biased. It's you know based on you know, these systems of exclusion, exclusionary care practices, et cetera. So, so we have to have people who are doing the research understand what those biases are um, and think about how to mitigate them. We, I mean, we have dozens now still of um, algorithms that have uh, faulty race corrections uh, and uh, modifiers that are, are again are you know built on racism, but we also don't really know if they are uh, what what race or ethnicity might be a proxy for. If we accept that these are social constructs, then you know what are the social and structural factors that we haven't quite captured that those are actually serving as proxies for in these algorithms. So, you know, balancing that, do we remove them, but then we are missing those still key aspects there. And, and just a word about telehealth and, you know, telehealth equity during the pandemic, you know, as many of us did in, in trying to think about how we would still, you know, serve these populations that have been, you know, marginalized and minoritized. Um, it, telehealth provided some opportunities, but also, we were still trying to force people to use telehealth the way that uh, privileged 
um, and resourced people use it. So we, we have to learn to be a little more flexible in what that looks like, what kinds of apps are required, how much, you know, paperwork people have to do before on their tiny, you know, devices, um, as opposed to people who are, you know, having their visits via a computer is a, a lot a very different. If, if you have to go um, outside to take your uh, visit because you are working in a job that where you don't have a desk and a door to close, you know, what, what does that look like? How is that different? And then, you know, we all often talk about this, you know, digital uh, divide, but you know, many of the populations that we're talking about are very tech savvy. They use their devices for many things in many ways. Uh, they just don't use it the way that we um, think they should or have planned for them to use it around healthcare and, and research. And so if we would just open our minds to, um, to allow them to partner with us uh, so that they can actually design those approaches and strategies, we'd probably be a lot more successful. Wonderful. Now, I can carry on the on the telehealth theme. Um, you know, we I think saw some great benefits. You know, during the initial period of flexibilities and increased use in telehealth and rare diseases, um, we also probably missed an opportunity to gather more robust data on how it was being used and how it may or may not have been improving some of the challenges you know experienced by rare disease patients. Um, but what is you know, the promise of telehealth in rare disease, you know, when you when we asked patients what are some of the, the most important benefits, it was being able to connect with a specialist out of the state that they live in, especially for those with rural, you know, locations or those who, you know, have a disease where there's one specialist in one, you know, city in the US. And previously, you know, to prior to the pandemic, they weren't able to connect with that specialist. They have mobility challenges. They're unable to, to travel or to afford to take, you know, three days off work, but maybe they could have taken a half of a day off work, right? Or a, a couple hours to be in an appointment, but traveling to these centers is just not feasible. Those patients for the first time were able to connect with those specialists and via telehealth because of the policies that were waiving the requirement that an individual be, uh, an established patient of the provider in order to receive telehealth services and be in the state where that provider is licensed. Unfortunately, as um, we have carried on, you know, throughout the pandemic, some of those policies have been rolled back and the most potentially beneficial to a rare disease patient in that they could see patient, they could see physicians out of state. Um, by and large, that has gone away. That flexibility has gone away, and we've reverted back to a system of state licensure being required, and that's simply not feasible for so many uh, medical providers to go state by state by state and try to get licensed. And that's if the state has allowed um, that that their patients to receive care out of state, regardless of whether they're licensed or not. So, and these are policies that are impacting everyone, but but certainly those who are um, receiving health care benefits through Medicaid, uh, it's, you know, even more of an impact. So we're, we risk losing some of the potential benefit that we have gained uh, over the last couple of years if we don't get our telehealth policies right. You know, I'll just add maybe one summative thing, which is I think we're hearing some of the comments, which I think are really informative about the promise of telehealth being very real. Um, but the, there are some of these perils that have been emerging that we are recognizing and I think really invite us to think about um, how we understand telehealth more effectively, how we design it, et cetera. And so I think there's a, an important research agenda here as well. Um, and, you know, we have seen in some of the studies that have come out during the pandemic, one by RAND that actually saw that the increases in the use of telehealth during the pandemic were mostly in, um, amongst individuals who were insured. Um, and were more affluent and more in metropolitan areas as compared to rural areas when you looked at telehealth overall. And when looking at low income individuals in this um, scenario in California, they found that the telehealth visits were audio only for the majority as opposed to including video. And we have to understand what those implications are, right, in terms of how different types of telehealth visits actually affect care outcomes. Um, so I think there is a really important research agenda. And some of the data that was coming out from surveying physicians actually found that there were real challenges 
in um, implementing this in terms of reimbursement, technology challenges for patients, as well as um, this integration into the electronic health records, especially for individuals that need um, coordinated care. That's a really important component of um, delivery of this type of service. And so um, these are the types of things I think that we need to under overcome in order to really um, see the benefits and the um, potential promise of telehealth come to fruition. So just wanted to add some of those points in relation to research that's come out around the telehealth services during the pandemic and the opportunities for us to push the envelope further with the research that's needed. Thank you, Michaela. So uh, unfortunately, we are out of time, so we are going to have to leave it there. Uh, thank you so much to all of our panelists for sharing your expertise and, and for providing such thoughtful comments. Uh, a reminder to our viewers that you can see a recording of this webinar as well as all previous events in this series at science.org slash webinars. Uh, this webinar is the fourth in our series, as I mentioned earlier, um, of six total running this year. So please do look out for the final two events that will be coming up in the next few weeks. Uh, thank you once again to our fantastic panel. I've learned so much from you, and I, I hope that our audience has as well. Uh, and also thank you to Foundation Ibsen for enabling this conversation through their kind sponsorship. So thank you again, and uh, goodbye, everyone. Mm -hmm.